Section 30 of the Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 28. Letters, 1888. A Yale Degree. Work on the Yankee, on interviewing, etc. Mark Twain received his first college degree when he was made Master of Arts by Yale in June 1888. Editor of The Current, Charles H. Clark, was selected to notify him of his new title. Clark was an old friend to whom Clemens could write familiarly. To Charles H. Clark in Hartford, Elmira, July 2, 88. My dear Charles, thanks for your thanks, and for your initiation intentions. I shall be ready for you. I feel mighty proud of that degree. In fact, I could squeeze the truth a little closer and say vain of it. And why shouldn't I be? I am the only literary animal of my particular subspecies who has ever been given a degree by any college in any age of the world, as far as I know. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens, M. A. Reply, Charles H. Clark, to S. L. Clemens. My dear friend, you are the only literary animal of your particular subspecies in existence, and you've no cause for humility in the fact. Yale has done herself at least as much credit as she has done you, and don't you forget it. C.H.C. With the exception of his brief return to the river in 1882, Mark Twain had been twenty-seven years away from pilots and piloting. Nevertheless, he always kept a tender place in his heart for the old times and for old river comrades. Major Jack Downing had been a Mississippi pilot of early days, but had long since retired from the river to a comfortable life ashore in an Ohio town. Clemens had not heard from him for years when a letter came which invited the following answer. To Major Jack Downing in Middleport, Ohio, Elmira, New York, no month, 1888. Dear Major, And has it come to this that the dead rise up and speak? for i suppose that you were dead it has been so long since i heard your name and how young you've grown i was a mere boy when i knew you on the river where you had been piloting for thirty-five years and now you are only a year and a half older than i am i mean to go to hot springs myself and get thirty or forty years knocked off my age it's manifestly the place that Ponce de Leon was striking for, but the poor fellow lost the trail. Possibly I may see you, for I shall be in St. Louis a day or two in November. I propose to go down the river and note the changes once more before I make the long crossing, and perhaps you can come there. Will you? I want to see all the boys that are left alive and so grant marsh too is flourishing yet a mighty good fella and smart too when we were taking that wood flat down to the chambers which was aground i soon saw that i was a perfect lubber 
at piloting such a thing. I saw that I could never hit the chambers with it, so I resigned in Marsh's favor, and he accomplished the task to my admiration. We should all have gone to the mischief if I had remained in authority. I always had good judgment, more judgment than talent, in fact. No, the nom de plume did not originate in that way. Captain Sellers used the signature Mark Twain himself when he used to write up the antiquities in the way of river reminiscences for the New Orleans Picayune. He hated me for burlesquing them in an article in the True Delta. So, four years later when he died, I robbed the corpse. That is, I confiscated the nom de plume. I have published this vital fact three thousand times now. But no matter, it is good practice. It is about the only fact that I can tell the same way every time. Very glad indeed to hear from you, Major, and shall be gladder still to see you in November. Yours truly, S. L. Clemens. He did not make the journey down the river planned for that year. He had always hoped to make another steamboat trip with Bixby, but one thing and another interfered, and he did not go again. Authors were always sending their books to Mark Twain to read, and no busy man was ever more kindly disposed toward such offerings, more generously considerate of the senders. Lewis Pendleton was a young unknown writer in 1888, but Clemens took time to read his story carefully, and to write to him about it a letter that cost precious time, thought, and effort. It must have rejoiced the young man's heart to receive a letter like that from one whom all young authors held supreme. To Lewis Pendleton, in Georgia, Elmira, New York, August 4, 88. My dear sir, I found your letter an hour ago, among some others which had lain forgotten a couple of weeks, and I at once stole time enough to read Ariadne. Stole is the right word, for the summer vacation is the only chance I get for work. So, no minute subtracted from work is borrowed. It is stolen. But this time I do not repent. As a rule, people don't send me books which I can thank them for, and so I say nothing, which looks uncourteous. But I thank you. Ariadne is a beautiful and satisfying story, and true, too, which is the best part of a story or indeed of any other thing. Even liars have to admit that, if they are intelligent liars. I mean in their private, the word conscientious written but erased, intervals. I struck that word out because a man's private thought can never be a lie. What he thinks is to him the truth, always. What he speaks, but these be platitudes. If you want me to pick some flaws, very well, but I do it unwillingly. I notice one thing, which one may notice also in my books, and in all books whether written by man or God, trifling carelessness of statement or expression. If I think that you meant that she took the lizard from the water which she had drawn from the well, it is evidence, it is almost proof, that your words were not as clear as they should have been. True, it is only a trifling thing, but so is mist on a mirror. 
I would have hung the pail on Ariadne's arm. You did not deceive me when you said that she carried it under her arm, for I knew she didn't. Still, it was not your right to mar my enjoyment of the graceful picture. If the pail had been a portfolio, I wouldn't be making these remarks. The engraver of a fine picture revises and revises and revises, and then revises and revises and revises, and then repeats, and always the charm of that picture grows under his hand. It was good enough before, told its story, and was beautiful. True, and a lovely girl is lovely with freckles, but she isn't at her level best with them. This is not hypercriticism. You have had training enough to know that. So much concerning exactness of statement. In that other not-small matter, selection of the exact single word, you are hard to catch. Still, I should hold that Mrs. Walker considered that there was no occasion for concealment, that motive implied a deeper mental search than she expended on the matter, that it doesn't reflect the attitude of her mind with precision. Is this hypercriticism? I shan't dispute it. I only say that if Mrs. Walker didn't go so far as to have a motive, I had to suggest that when a word is so near the right one that a body can't quite tell whether it is or isn't, it's good politics to strike it out and go for the thesaurus. That's all. Motive may stand, but you have allowed a snake to scream, and I will not concede that that was the best word. I do not apologize for saying these things for they are not said in the speck-hunting spirit, but in the spirit of want to help if I can. They would be useful to me if said to me once a month. They may be useful to you, said once. I saved the other stores for my real vacation, which is nine months long, to my sorrow. I thank you again. Yours truly, S. L. Clemens. In the next letter, we get a sidelight on the typesetting machine, the Frankenstein monster that was draining their substance and holding out false hopes of relief and golden return. The program here outlined was one that would continue for several years yet, with the end always in sight, but never quite attained. To Orion Clemens in Keokuk, Iowa, October 3, 88. Private saturday twenty ninth by a closely calculated estimate there were eighty-five days work to do on the machine we can use four men but not constantly if they could work constantly it would complete the machine in twenty-one days of course they will all be on hand and under wages and each will get in all the work there is opportunity for but by how much they can reduce the 85 days toward the 21 days, nobody can tell. Today, I pay Pratt & Whitney $10,000. This squares back indebtedness and everything to date. They began about May or April or March 1886, along there somewhere, and have always kept from a dozen to two dozen master hands on the machine. That outgo is done. Four men for a month or two will close up that leak and caulk it. Work on the patents is also kind of drawn toward a conclusion. Love to you both. All well here.
and give our love to Ma if she can get the idea. Sam. Mark Twain that year was working pretty steadily on The Yankee at King Arthur's Court, a book which he had begun two years before. He had published nothing since the Huck Finn story, and his company was badly in need of a new book by an author of distinction. Also, it was highly desirable to earn money for himself, wherefore he set to work to finish the Yankee story. He had worked pretty steadily that summer in his Elmira study, but on his return to Hartford found a good deal of confusion in the house, so went over to Twitchell's where carpenter work was in progress. He seems to have worked there successfully, though what improvement of conditions he found in that numerous lively household over those at home, it would be difficult to say. To Theodore W. Crane at Quera Farm, Elmira, New York, Friday, October 5, 88. Dear Theo, I am here in Twitcher's house at work, with the noise of the children and an army of carpenters to help. Of course, they don't help, but neither do they hinder. It's like a boiler factory for racket, and in nailing a wooden ceiling onto the room under me, the hammering tickles my feet amazingly sometimes, and jars my table a good deal. But I never am conscious of the racket at all, and I move my feet into position of relief without knowing when I do it. I began here Monday morning, and have done eighty pages since. I was so tired last night that I thought I would lie abed and rest today, but I couldn't resist. I mean to try to knock off tomorrow, but it's doubtful if I do. I want to finish the day the machine finishes, and a week ago the closest calculations for that indicated October 22. But experience teaches me that their calculations will misfire, as usual. The other day the children were projecting a purchase, Livy and I to furnish the money, a dollar and a half. Jean discouraged the idea. She said, We haven't got any money. Children, if you would think, you would remember the machine isn't done. It's billiards tonight. I wish you were here. With love to you both, S.L.C. P.S. I got it all wrong. It wasn't the children. It was Marie. She wanted a box of blacking for the children's shoes. Jean reproved her and said, Why, Marie, you mustn't ask for things now. The machine isn't done. S.L.C. The letter that follows is to another of his old pilot friends, one who was also a schoolmate, Will Bowen, of Hannibal. There is today no means of knowing the occasion upon which this letter was written, but it does not matter. It is the letter itself that is of chief value. To Will Bowen in Hannibal, Missouri, Hartford, November 4, 88. Dear Will, I received your letter yesterday evening, just as I was starting out of town to attend a wedding, and so my mind was privately busy all the evening in the midst of the maelstrom of chat and chaff and laughter with the sort of reflections which create themselves examine themselves and continue themselves unaffected by surroundings unaffected that is understood by the surroundings but not uninfluenced by them here was the near presence of the two supreme events of life 
marriage which is the beginning of life and death which is the end of it i found myself seeking chances to shirk into corners where i might think undisturbed and the most i got out of my thought was this both marriage and death ought to be welcome the one promises happiness doubtless the other assures it a long procession of people filed through my mind people whom you and i knew so many years ago so many centuries ago it seems like and these ancient dead marched to the soft marriage music of a band concealed in some remote room of the house and the contented music and the dreaming shades seemed in right accord with each other and fitting nobody else knew that a procession of the dead was passing through this noisy swarm of the living but there it was and to me there was nothing uncanny about it rio they were welcome faces to me i would have liked to bring up every creature we knew in those days even the dumb animals it would be bathing in the fable fountain of youth we all feel your deep trouble with you and we would hope if we might but your words deny us that privilege to die oneself is a thing that must be easy and of light consequence but to lose a part of oneself well we know how deep that pain goes we who have suffered that disaster receive that wound which cannot heal sincerely your friend s l clemens his next is of quite a different nature evidently the typesetting conditions had alarmed orion and he was undertaking some economies with a view of retrenchment orion was always reducing economy to science once at an earlier date he recorded that he had figured his personal living expenses down to sixty cents a week but inasmuch as he was then by his own confession unable to earn the sixty cents this particular economy was wasted orion was a trial certainly and the explosion that follows was not without excuse furthermore it was not as bad as it sounds mark twain's rages always had an element of humor in them a fact which no one more than orion himself would appreciate he preserved this letter quietly noting on the envelope letter from sam about ma's nurse letter to orion clemens in keokuk iowa november twenty nine eighty eight jesus christ it is perilous to write such a man you can go crazy on less material than anybody that ever lived what in hell has produced all these maniacal imaginings you told me you had hired an attendant for ma now hire one instantly and stop this nonsense of wearing molly and yourself out trying to do that nursing yourselves hire the attendant and tell me her cost so that i can instruct webster and company to add it every month to what they already send don't fool away any more time about this and don't write me any more damned rot about storms and inability to pay trivial sums of money and and hell and damnation you see i've read only the first page of your letter i wouldn't read the rest for a million dollars your sam p s don't imagine that i have lost my temper because i swear i swear all day but i do not lose my temper and don't imagine that I am on my way to the poor house, for I am not. 
or that I am uneasy, for I am not, or that I am uncomfortable or unhappy, for I never am. I don't know what it is to be unhappy or uneasy, and I'm not going to try to learn how at this late date. Sam Few men were ever interviewed oftener than Mark Twain, yet he never welcomed interviewers and was seldom satisfied with them. What I see in an interview loses its character in print, he often remarked, all its life and personality. The reporter realizes this himself and tries to improve upon me, but it doesn't help matters any. Edward W. Bach, before he became editor of the Ladies' Home Journal, was conducting a weekly syndicate column under the title of Bach's Literary Leaves. It usually consisted of news and gossip of writers, comment, etc., literary odds and ends, and occasional interviews with distinguished authors. He went up to Hartford one day to interview Mark Twain. The result seemed satisfactory to Bach, but wishing to be certain that it would be satisfactory to Clemens, he sent him a copy for approval. The interview was not returned. In the place of it came a letter not altogether disappointing, as the reader may believe. To Edward W. Bach in New York My dear Mr. Bach, no, no, it is like most interviews, pure twaddle and valueless. For several quite plain and simple reasons, an interview must, as a rule, be an absurdity, and chiefly for this reason. It is an attempt to use a boat on land or a wagon on water, to speak figuratively. Spoken speech is one thing, written speech is quite another. Print is the proper vehicle for the latter, but it isn't for the former. The moment talk is put into print, you recognize that it is not what it was when you heard it. You perceive that an immense something has disappeared from it, that it is soul. You have nothing but a dead carcass left on your hands. Color, play of feature, the varying modulations of the voice, the laugh, the smile, the informing inflections, everything that gave that body warmth, grace, friendliness and charm and commended it to your affections or at least to your tolerance is gone and nothing is left but a pallid stiff and repulsive cadaver such is talk almost invariably as you see it lying in state in an interview the interviewer seldom tries to tell one how a thing was said he merely puts in the naked remark and stops there when one writes for print his methods are very different he follows forms which have but little resemblance to conversation but they make the reader understand what the writer is trying to convey and when the writer is making a story and finds it necessary to report some of the talk of his characters observe how cautiously and anxiously he goes at that risky and difficult thing if he had dared to say that thing in my presence said alfred taking a mock heroic attitude and casting an arch glance upon the company, blood would have flowed. If he had dared to say that thing in my presence, said Hawkwood, with that in his eye which caused more than one heart in that guilty assemblage to quake, blood would have flowed. If he had dared to say that thing in my presence, said the paltry blusterer with valor on his tongue and pallor on his lips, blood would have flowed. 
so painfully aware is the novelist that naked talk in print conveys no meaning that he loads and often overloads almost every utterance of his characters with explanations and interpretations it is a loud confession that print is a poor vehicle for talk it is a recognition that uninterpreted talk in print would result in confusion to the reader not instruction now in your interview you have certainly been most accurate you have set down the sentences i uttered as i said them but you have not a word of explanation what my manner was at several points is not indicated therefore no reader can possibly know where i was in earnest and where i was joking or whether i was joking altogether or in earnest altogether such a report of a conversation has no value it can convey many meanings to the reader but never the right one to add interpretations which would convey the right meaning is a something which would require what an art so high and fine and difficult that no possessor of it would ever be allowed to waste it on interviews nah spare the reader and spare me leave the whole interview out it is rubbish i wouldn't talk in my sleep if i couldn't talk better than that if you wish to print anything print this letter it may have some value for it may explain to a reader here and there why it is that in interviews as a rule men seem to talk like anybody but themselves very sincerely yours mark twain end of section thirty recording by james k white chula vista